0: Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman.
1: And I'm Mark Hopwood.
0: With us today is Amartya Sen, Thomas W. Lamont University professor and professor of economics and philosophy at Harvard University. And he is here to talk with us about justice. Amartya Sen, welcome. Thank you. A lot of your work has developed in response to the work of the influential political philosopher John Rawls. So I thought maybe we could begin by just asking you to tell us a bit about those aspects of Rawls's political philosophy that you've responded to in your work.
2: Well, thank you. Rawls is, of course, I think um, almost certainly the most important political philosopher of our time, the dominant figure who has changed the course of political philosophy from his early publications in the late 50s onwards, and his book, A Theory of Justice, published in 1971, is a kind of definitive statement of a theory of justice based on the idea of a contract, of a social contract, an approach originally introduced by Thomas Hobbes in the 17th century and pursued in different ways by John Locke and Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Immanuel Kant. And there's a whole lot of people doing it, but it's, I think, with the Rolse's theory of justice that contractarian approach reaches a level of completion which we don't get elsewhere. And the other theories of justice that we primarily get today, like that of Ronald Walken or Robert Nozick, David Gauthier, they may differ from Rawls in many different ways, but they are all based on the idea of a social contract. And I think the essential idea there is that you think of a society in which people in the Rawlsian form People yet don't know who they are going to be, as it were, and they draw up the principles that should have priority and which would determine the basic institutions of society on the basis of that veil of ignorance when you're not guided by your vested interest, but you are choosing the institutions on the basis of what would be fair without knowing whether you're going to be rich or poor or, or with a beautiful face and a good singing voice or not and other qualities. And I think this is a remarkably important exercise. My approach is not a contractarian approach, and it's very strongly influenced by Rawls, who was a close friend, big influence, and a teacher, too. I met him a long time ago in the 60s, and in 1968, 69. Uh, actually, when I was in Delhi University, but I came to Harvard to teach for a year as a visiting professor. And jointly with John Rawls and Kenneth Arrow, a great economist, uh, we offered, there was an Arrow, Rawls, and then, course offered in 68, 69. Quite an interesting course. We enjoyed it and I was influenced by it. We had a number of um, very exciting students, including Alan Gibbard and so on. Uh, they have made their own marks in that course. Uh, following the work that they were doing, mainly with John Rawls, they have um, pursue philosophy and and really change the contour of the subject. So he's a big influence, and he's a big influence on me. Where do I disagree with him? (laughs) I think the first thing is that I don't think the pursuit of justice is really concerned with looking for the perfectly just world. Because, you know, when we discuss the injustice, for example, today of uh, people dying without medical care, when medical care could become available if we organize society differently, people dying without medicine, which can be produced cheaply, but given the counterproductive nature of the patent system, they are not produced. Or when we see that a lot of children don't ever go to school, and many of them are extremely undernourished in a way that is completely unnecessary, there is an issue of injustice there. But the removal of these injustices will not make the world perfectly just. They are comparison between one situation which is unjust with another which is unjust, but they're not unjust in the same way. That is, one of them has eliminated some identifiable injustices. So I think in my exercise, as I see the theory of justice, it's mainly concerned with the removal of injustices. And even when all the ones that you identify on which on the basis of reasoning you could have an agreement with people as to which of them must go and which of them should be seen as intolerable injustice, even when you have that agreement and done everything you could, the world would still not be perfectly just because there would be a thousand other ways that they could be more perfect. So I think the mathematics also, and that is relevant, that knowing what the ideal situation is doesn't tell you about how you rank one situation, which is not perfectly just, with another, which which is also not perfectly just. I mean, when people were agitating about the abolition of slavery in the 18th century, in the early period of Enlightenment at the time of Immanuel Kant and Adam Smith and other great thinkers of that period, they were convinced, uh, those who were arguing against slavery, that removal of slavery would be a gigantically important step in enhancing justice. But they were not claiming that that would make the world perfectly just. Similarly, when Mary Wollstonecraft, not only arguing at the same time, not only arguing against slavery, but also against the subjugation of women, were asking for what she called the vindication of the rights of women. But even when these basic rights of women are vindicated, mainly being treated in a similar way to men, that will not have made the world perfectly just. I think the engagement of justice is not concerned with perfect justice. That, I think, is perhaps the most important point. I mean, there are some other differences. It's not only in the role you exercise, you look for a perfectly just world. You basically don't even look for that. You look for perfectly just institutions. Now, institutions could be perfectly just without it generating a perfectly just world because of the fact that the kind of world that is generated depends not only on institutions but also on our behavior. And how, what the game theorists these days call, how one person's strategies interact with that or another. So it depends on behavior, their interactions, and the world that emerges is different. Now, again, I'm concerned with manifest nature of the world in which we live, as to whether there is, uh, what kind of a world is it. And I won't be satisfied when I'm told that the institutions are fine, well, if people are still leading it terrible life, then there's something unjust going on. So I think the two major differences are that my concern is not with perfect justice, and the mathematics of it is identification. of perfect justice doesn't tell you about ranking. For example, if you take rank ABC and ACB, both of them have exactly the same top, namely A. But you may agree on that. At the same time, according to one argument, you're saying B is above C, and the other according to C is above B. There's a certain amount of mathematical confusion when people assume that by identifying perfectly just you've already identified everything that you need to know about what makes society more unjust or less unjust than another. You haven't. That's a different exercise and that's the one we have to be concerned with. And it's the nature of the world in which we live rather than the nature of the institution that we have that can claim to be the object of our attention.
1: So the idea that you're associating with Rawls is a very powerful idea that, as you've said, has been associated with a lot of other political philosophers, which might be something like the idea that in order to think philosophically about justice and distinguish between situations that are more or less unjust, we need an ideal standard. We need to have some kind of idea of the ideally just society so that, as Aristotle says... In order to be good archers, we need to have some kind of target at which to aim. But on the contrary, you're saying that in fact such an ideal standard is not only not necessary for thinking about the justice or injustice of situations, it's actually not sufficient. It doesn't do the job. No, it's, that it's
2: not necessary, not sufficient. Absolutely.
1: Right. So someone might have a question at that point about what you propose to... Substitute for that model. So one might have the worry that if we don't have this idea of an ideally just society and the ways in which the situation we see in front of us varies from it, then we have no principled basis for deeming a situation to be unjust. That all we really have at that point is our gut reaction to injustice.
2: I I think that's a mistake. (laughs) I think it's a conclusion. Because, uh, you know, to think of an ideal society, is, it may or may not help at all. Let me give you an example. An unfortunate case, you are, having a, you are having a sauna, and somehow, uncontrollably, the temperature keeps on going up and up and up until you feel you are about to boil. Now, then you try to escape, and the sauna door is closed. You find that you can't get out. So you shout, and your friend comes, who is outside, And he tries to open the door, but he can't either, because the door is stuck. However, he does have the control, and the temperature is getting absolutely intolerable. You don't know whether you can tolerate it. And you say, please, could you get at least the temperature down? And he said, certainly. But tell me first, what is the ideal temperature you want? And I said, I don't know what ideal temperature it is that I want, but I want it to be far less than what it is now. For God's sake, do something. And he said, look, don't be, liked, don't be arbitrary, because in the absence of knowing the ideal temperature, all this is so completely arbitrary, exactly like your argument, that it is so completely arbitrary, we have nothing other than gut reaction to have. Now, in this case, of course, gut reaction is rather important. Quite often, gut reactions are not irrelevant to reasoning. But the same, exactly same thing applies to reasoning, too. By reasoning, you could say, surely we have to reduce inequality in America today as it exists that doesn't require you to say that what would be the ideal degree of inequality in the United States. That's a completely different kind of question. It's a matter of reasoning. But to say that you can't say that America is more unequal without agreement on what would be an ideal level of inequality if any and to say that it would be complete equality wouldn't work either because in order to give people incentives and so on you will have to have some kind of inequality. How much would be ideal? I think that is a completely different kind of exercise. Not uninteresting, not unexciting. Of course they are. Very exciting, very interesting. But ultimately what you're really concerned with is the question of what can make the world less unjust, what could improve the nature of the world in which we live. And to say that we have nothing other than gut reaction if we don't have a view of some imagined ideal on which there may be agreement or disagreement and I don't think that we will have exact agreement. Neither the sauna guy, would there somebody will give a temperature of maybe, I don't know, 60 degrees and another might say 55. I just don't know. Uh, uh, And I can't even think in centigrade very well, so I don't even know how would I go about that. But I don't think, and some people would say, look, we have to tolerate a lot of inequality in America, Because that's what you need for liberty, and liberty is important too. Another person might say, look, liberty may be important, but not that important. We need much greater economic equality, even if it means that liberty is somewhat compromised. Now, there could be strong argument one direction or the other in that, but it doesn't follow at all that you can't agree on what should be done in the United States right now, right today without actually going into the other issue. And it's not just a question of practicality. It's a matter of theory, too. The theory of practice is not a theory of an ideal world. Theory of practice and practical reason, the old name of philosophy, (laughs) of an applied kind of political philosophy, moral philosophy. Practical reason is about practice. And practice is not about an ideal world which you can dream of, but never in practice have practical reason is about what alternatives you can consider. They may or may not be feasible now, but you can practically conceive of. But I I would think that there are a lot of subjects, like how much inequality would be ideal for America, what would be the exact trade-off between liberty and equality. I would argue that these things are subjects on which there would be reasonable reason differences between our positions. And to be hostage to that, to be imprisoned by that, and not being able to get going at all, would be exactly like being stuck in the sauna, without anything being done until an ideal temperature had been determined.
0: So I'd like to go back to the issue you raised before about the, the possible disparity there between having all of our political and social institutions set up perfectly and being able to live perfect lives. So what would be an example of that disparity, of a situation in which our institutions were set up in an ideal way, but in which the lives we were able to lead uh, were somehow less than ideal?
2: Well, I think there's two things here to note. The first thing is that we cannot, I mean, my earlier statement was a, a very brief statement, but let me elaborate on that bit. I think we cannot discuss what is an ideal set of institutions without taking into account people's behavior. For example, if you assume that human beings are incorruptible, you may be able to produce a system which has a huge amount of scope for corruption, but which people don't take. And when people are all honest and non-corrupt, they work perfectly fine. And the world has often gone that way. Even some of the problems that visited the socialist countries was connected with that because people expected the level of dedicated work for the state institutions which often didn't obtain. And people actually made use of the opportunities that having control over the limits of power gave you. And that's why, from the early days of socialist thinking, you move to the kind of thing that Ken Galway discusses about countervailing powers. Now, countervailing powers make certain institutions ideal, but they are ideal for a non-idealized world in which people are corruptible and in which the excesses of one group are being controlled by other groups which also have power. So I think the idea that you can have institutions independently of behavior is a mistaken one. Now, Rawls doesn't make that mistake at all. What he does is a different kind of mistake. I think it is a mistake, but of course he makes an assumption, which I think is unfortunate for practical reasons. And that is the assumption that once you've set up the institutions for a certain kind of behavior, you're a different kind of game, if I may use game-theoretic language. The nature of the game changes. And now you're all acting in a way that makes those institutions function well. So once you have the just institutions, quote-unquote, people's behavior also turn just. Now, you see, then it's making everything turn on one parameter, namely institutions. And behavior, if you may use mathematical term, is a completely determined variable, not an independent variable at all. But that's not the case in the world. I mean, you could have institutions, and still people may end up being corrupt. You know why these were set up. You know that these were to collect money when some is due and people not to cheat. The reason why you need ticket checking when you go in and out of a subway system is because people wouldn't act like that. And But if you set up a subway system thinking that that would be ideal and it would be cheaper to run a subway system without any checking at all, and life would be much simpler. But we don't do it because we don't assume just because we all agreed that this is the best system, that people's behavior would correspond to it. So there's a huge problem of interdependent between institution and behavior. So that's the first point to make. The second point to make is that we can still think of what ideal combination of behavior and institutions would make sense compared with other things. Now that's one way of thinking about it. Now here again you might say, but can we actually think of behavior and institutions combination on which there would be agreement on the people? Some people would like to attach greater importance to considerations of liberty in that, so that if telephone tapping saves lives, you still may not wish to do it. Others might think that you ought to do it, because saving lives is very important. All kinds of ways, our ideal combination of institutions and behavior may also be different. The same consideration now applies to what I was applying earlier, only to the idea of the just world. Now it applies to the most just combination of behavior institutions we can think of. Because most of the the, the actual practical debate will not be about that. It would be about how to remove injustices. It had been about slavery and subjugation of women and exploitation of labor in the past. And and some of them are still relevant. And it could be today much more clearly that every American has a health care extending it that every person in the world has some kind of medical coverage that every child goes to school and so on and once you're considering that your priorities are quite different you're not looking for what ideal combination of justice etc you do and you may not be able to send every child to the school in, in realistic possibility for various complications that exist in the nature of the society including parental attitudes including the possibility of organizing schools and remote rural areas. All kinds of problems may exist. But what you're still trying to do is the best you can. And in particular, what you need to know is that you should not choose an alternative to which a better alternative can be discussed, on which agreement could emerge, and which you can actually carry out. That, to me, is the central engagement of a theory of justice, seen as a theory of practical reason.
1: So we've talked about the different ways in which we might be able to come to a reasoned conclusion about just and unjust situations without appeal to an ideal theory of the ideally just society. One argument you've also made, though, and that you've referred to implicitly, is that We might not need just one set of reasons or just one scale on which we're assessing justice and injustice. So that it might be possible, if I have your view right, to have a number of different, potentially even competing sets of reasons, different perspectives that we might have, different kinds of arguments that we might give for the justice or injustice of certain situations. And that we don't need to resolve those debates, if indeed they can be resolved, in order to come to, to reasoned agreement. So perhaps yes. you could say something about yes. that. Yeah.
2: No, I think it is a, it's a very interesting issue to think about, I personally think. Um, I think the, there are different kinds of reasons which we all have, and that's true of worlds too. There are reasons of liberty, which he gives priority to. There are reasons of procedural fairness, to which he gives also uh, great importance. And then he also is concerned about reducing inequality, removing poverty and deprivation. He proceeds in that direction too. Now, it's not the case that any serious philosopher in political philosophy thinks that there's only one principle which which trumps everything else. There may be some, but I haven't met them (laughs) very often, but all certainly doesn't. But what he thinks is that ultimately, there is a unique combination of principles prioritized on which there would be agreement. And that in the Rawlsian case is priority of liberty. Issues of liberty trumps everything else. Given the same amount of equal, what he calls, equal liberty, the same fulfillment of liberty for all, um, then you have to worry about the procedural fairness that people are not discriminated on grounds, for example, of race or gender or ethnicity, class, and allowed to hold certain positions and others are not. So you eliminate those. And then when all these are done, liberty has been done and the procedural fairness have been looked after, then you try to reduce inequality and in Rolandian case, if anything, works out to the advantage of the least well-off group anything that improves it, it's a better situation. He doesn't stop this is a good ranking principle but he doesn't stop there, he goes all the way to the thing that makes the least well off best off. that's the way proceeds. Mm-hmm. So the interesting thing here is not a plurality of being denied, a plurality of reasons, but a singularity of a combination of reasons adequately prioritized against each other Now, my difficulty with it is that I think plurality of reason is just right. But I don't think you will get exactly the same resolution. Some people would argue that liberty, I mean, actually, when Rawls published his book first in a review of it, I think in Chicago Law Review, if I remember right, Herbert Hart, a great legal thinker from Oxford, professor of jurisprudence, wrote as a critique, why should it be the case that the slightest violation of liberty is not allowed, even if that reduces inequality and deprivation in a dramatic way. Why should it have such lexicographic, like a dictionary, words in A begin a place before words beginning with B, and once you get A the same, then Aba comes earlier than acerbic, because the next letter is B in one case and C in the other. It's not quite like that because there's a trade off. So if you take that view, the first thing is that it won't have that lexicographic priority thing. But secondly, people would take different view. I mean, Rawls probably would take that view. I mean, as someone who is, you know, since he was a friend of mine, a teacher of mine, and also someone with whom I work and I've taught classes together, I know that he did think that was right. But a lot of people would not agree. It's not just a matter of intuition. They have reasoning, and, and Hart gave reasoning as to why that's not right. And in Rawls' book on... In his second book, he, Political Liberalism, he goes into the question as to why Hart has some truth in his position. So, and I think all said not, I don't think he quite resolves that for his But I think I see in it a general question that we will have these disagreements. But that doesn't mean that we couldn't agree that people dying without medical care is unjust, people not going to school is unjust children being doomed to undernourished lives and that dooming their physical development and mental development is unjust, people being tortured in a way that some of the leaders of the global establishment may actually, in fact, practice, not to mention meaner (laughs) governmental leaders than those, we could agree that these are unjust without having to agree the exact balance of reasoning about inequality versus liberty and so on. So it's not A, we don't need to resolve that, B, we will not be able to resolve that, and C, even in this absence we could have perfectly good agreement on what would be a way of reducing injustice in the world today. That doesn't mean in the future agreement may not extend beyond it. When people fought for slavery abolition, they thought that was a very important step. Actually, when the American Declaration of Independence came, they thought it was most important to be independent of Britain. And they didn't even worry about slavery. And that is one of the reasons why Mary Wilsoncraft, a great defender of the French Revolution and of the American Revolution, was a critique of the Declaration of Independence on grounds that it said nothing about slaves. But then again, when the slavery abolition time came, they insisted of Abraham Lincoln and others that that is a priority of the day. They were not saying whether the right to a unionized labor is a major right. That was another day's battle. So I think the engagement of justice proceeds in terms of how much agreement on the basis of reasoning you could get as to what is the reasonable resolution today. And a theory of justice has to be a theory of that. And that's really what I'm trying to argue for. Whether I've succeeded, I don't know. But that's my attempt.
0: Amartya Sen, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. To listen to future episodes of Elucidations, You may consult our website at philosophy.uchicago.edu slash podcasts.